Please keep this passage open before you. Uh, for those of you who receive an email from me every week, I uh, uh, looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in that email. And uh, we're now going to go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. I was reminded as we read Psalm 27, or noticed rather, that twice in that psalm, the psalmist speaks about being confident. Confident of this, that I will see the Lord in the land of the living. And Paul uses that same expression here. We we are confident, verse 8 of chapter 5, we are confident. Verse 6 he says the same, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. What a wonderful gift that is. God gives us, by his grace, that we can be confident in the things that he says, confident in our faith, confident in what God is going to be doing in our lives, confident of the future that he's prepared for every one of his children. That's a precious thing, isn't it? And I pray that every one of us would know that measure of confidence so that we would not be a doubting people but rather confident in him. This is an interesting passage because it's very personal. And it's also very particular to Paul's experience. So he's writing very personally about the things that he's endured. Chapter 4, he speaks about the the fact that he he was very, very aware that in his particular ministry, uh, there are big struggles. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 4 and and onwards up to verse 12, he talks about this even as a kind of a death experience that he experiences daily. He takes up his cross, he follows the Lord Jesus Christ and he, he dies because of the burden that is placed upon him to be a minister of the gospel. And it's very, very costly for him. We are hard-pressed. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We're struck down. Well, there's a dying there, and he identifies that dying with the the same dying that uh, Jesus Christ endured throughout his life. And in in chapter 6, which we're not going to be looking at this morning, um, he speaks also of the many difficulties that he's faced from a a human perspective Um, sorrowful under bad report well troubles and troubles and troubles that he faced and because of that we might be tempted to feel that what he has to say here is only really relevant for him it's a kind of a particular hope that he himself has because of his faithfulness in following the Lord Jesus Christ in his particular ministry. But that cannot be the case, because he's not just writing a diary here, he's speaking to the Corinthians as a people, as a whole church. He wants this to be read out, and and these letters were not to be restricted just to one church, but to be passed from church to church, that all might benefit from what is said. And of course we know that it is not just the Corinthians and the first century churches that were to receive this message, 
but us today. Because this is in the Bible. And all of these words are given to us for our encouragement and strengthening and real help. So we need to very firmly engage personally with what Paul has to say here. And to know that it's said for us. There are particularities about his ministry, his experiences, which we can't necessarily identify with. But there are broad principles that Paul lays out here that are for our deep encouragement for every Christian to be encouraged by, to be confident in. So we're going to look at each verse in turn and uh, just, just to help you with what's on the screen. So on the left-hand side, we're going to go verse by verse by verse I give on the right-hand side some sort of key pointers so those who take notes or want to remember certain things can uh, take these to heart, but not to be hidebound by what you see on the screen. So let's look now firstly at chapter 5, verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And you might find something, you do find something extremely similar to that in the book of, second letter of Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Peter says, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. It's an interesting picture and uh, the idea of a tent, the tent of this body. That's right, that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about his own body. That's what Peter is referring to there. And there is a time coming when we will die or be with, taken by the Lord as he comes again. But this existing body will drop away. In another place he talks about it being destroyed. Paul was a tent maker, you know that. And he did that in order to gain a living. And he knew about tents and the people who bought tents and what tents were made of and uh, how fragile they are. And uh, It's a blessing. I don't think any of us is having to live in a tent today, are we? We we have a house. (laughs) It has a degree of permanence. But tents are not permanent dwellings. Bless the poor people in uh, Bangladesh, in those massive camps who are living in tents. What, what, a, what, what a temporary and unsatisfactory way to be living. And uh, Paul and Peter have the same mind. That uh, the body that we have is a temporary. A temporary thing. And one day we will have it no longer. It will be gone. And Paul says we know. He's assured of this. He's very confident about this. It's a personal statement. How, how lovely it is, as John 1.14 reminds us, that the Lord Jesus Christ came and tabernacled amongst us. He tented amongst us. He was prepared to be in the place of fragility and need 
and transience. So he identifies with us so, so beautifully. As our carols remind us, he was not born in a palace, though he deserved it. But everything about his life reflected a tenting existence. If the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, it's a bit of a strong phrase here. It could equally be taken down, just as you might take a tent down. So at some point our bodies get dismantled. Those of us of a certain age know what it is for our bodies to be dismantled. Piece by piece. Aches and pains. They're all little reminders that one day this this body will just fail and it will be gone. Paul's daily work was to him as a parable and as his hands were making the temporary shelter for those who were travellers on earth he thought of the house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Hmm. There's a lovely hymn which uh, we're going to sing at the end. The original words go like this. Here in the body pent, absent from him I roam, but nightly pitched my wandering tent, a day's march nearer home. <laughs> the people of God are wanderers. So much of the Bible pictures this community of God's people as wandering, wandering through the desert. They don't have any permanency on this earth. They're looking forward to something better. As I came to this passage, I was thinking, I'm going to really enjoy doing this because I love this passage. But here is a big problem, (laughs) and it's found in verse 1. And the problem is this, or the challenge is this. What is Paul referring to when he talks about an eternal house in heaven, not built with human, by human hands? Is this heavenly structure the resurrection body? Or is it a physical dwelling of some kind? I think automatically, as we read this passage, we think it must be referring to the resurrection body. But here's the rub. Paul is speaking about those who die now. He's speaking about the fact that he's ready for that moment. Just as Peter was. What is the situation of those who die in the Lord now? Before the Lord Jesus returns. What is sometimes called the intermediate state. We know that Jesus will return. And when he returns he will bring those who are with him in heaven with him. 
and the dead should be raised. And those mortal bodies that we've just been talking about will be made incorruptible. Death shall be swallowed up. And we will have these new bodies. But when does that happen? Well, the scriptures say to us that this happens on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we're challenged by this thought that even though Paul may, it appears, have had some expectation that he would still be alive when Jesus returned. And indeed it is a sort of a prayer and an expectation which is granted to the whole church in every generation. An awareness that they may well be alive when Jesus returns. We don't know when he will come. But what we do know is there's been 2,000 years of church history since the day of Pentecost where people have died. Their bodies are in the ground. Their earthly bodies are decaying. But they are present with the Lord. As he puts it, at home with the Lord. So what is the situation for all those people? Well, the word is actually remarkably silent on this particular point. It it almost jumps ahead to the future glory, the new heaven and the new earth, where God's people will be comprehensively changed. But that's not the present moment. So I look at the commentaries, and they often refer quite naturally and understandably to the idea of the of the tent of the body the new body but 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 here's the problem we won't get that new body until Jesus returns so I just keep making that point and even though the language here so often seems to speak about a clothing a covering an encasement which is to do with sort of body language. So I think, I think, this may be referring to something rather different. It's helpful to be reminded of what the Lord Jesus said when he was comforting his disciples just prior to his death he says in John 14 verse 1 do not let your hearts be troubled trust in God trust also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am Jesus is going to prepare a place. Authorised version talks about a mansion. Many mansions. Which I think is completely the wrong impression. Because actually the wording means something like a residence or a room. A place. A physical dwelling. Interesting, the Greek word which is used in John 14 verse 1 is oikos 
which means an abode and by implication a family. A place where a family can dwell. And it's exactly the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the eternal house. And the distinction that Paul makes throughout this passage is that he compares the temporary residence that we have here with the permanent residence that we will have there. The earthly here, the heavenly there, the fragile here, the solid there. Dwelling places. So I'm hesitantly (laughs) going to suggest that what Paul may be referring to here about the intermediate state is that there is great comfort to be drawn from this idea that the Lord Jesus Christ has prepared a place for us to be. And it's a place that he's happy to be visiting. (laughs) And we will be with him. Open door. He's gone to prepare that place. And we were very blessed to have four days away together as a family group recently in Wiltshire. Ten of us. And my brother has a house that accommodates that. How kind of him. He didn't charge us a penny. <laughs> it was freely given. They've moved to South Africa. They're so far away. It was so kind of them in the midst of their move, which is in December, and we were going there in end of December, not only just to make that available for us, but there were so many little touches about that expressed their thoughtfulness. So there were there were toys on the beds for the children. There were books put in particular rooms that my brother thought we'd find uh, interesting, entertaining. So it's a book about railways <laughs> for me. And uh, uh, you know those latest Ladybird books about famous five go Brexit or whatever. So I had a whole part of those to read through as well. <laughs> I don't know what that says about him or about me. But uh, there were so many touches. And a hamper arrived on the day from Fortnum and Mason. <gasps> you know what's in those. They're wonderful, aren't they? How kind and thoughtful that was, my dear brother, to to do all that in the midst of all the other cares and things that he had on his mind. How loving of the Lord Jesus Christ that he says to his disciples, each one of them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. His touches will be appropriate to our needs. The place where we will be will be completely suited to us. And it will have just the hallmarks of our precious Lord Jesus Christ upon them. It's interesting in that that, uh, John 14 verse, he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Why does he say that? Does he say that because some of them were fearful about missing out 
They may not meet the mark. They weren't in the same category, possibly, as John and James and Peter. But he will hold me fast. And I think Jesus is saying to each one of them, I'm going to hold you fast. There's going to be a place for you. A place for you. For everyone who belongs to him, there will be a place. There's plenty of room. Plenty of room in heaven for all of God's people. Well, there are truths in both cases of resurrection body or a physical dwelling. But I think in terms of his particular hope at that particular moment, uh, we'll go down the route of the physical dwelling. When I say physical, I mean it has tangibility. This isn't just a, a sort of a, a mirage. But there's tangibility about heaven. That it should be enjoyed. Verse 2. Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. We groan not because of sorrows. There's plenty of reason for groaning because of sorrows. The whole creation is groaning because of its sorrowful condition. But because of a strong desire and yearning and longing for the heavenly dwelling. Isn't that, isn't that precious? That's the way he thinks about his current situation. A lot of us know about groaning because of difficulties, groaning because of our troubles. And that's human, that's understood, and so forth. But Paul groans because of his longing for what lies ahead. The heavenly home is far more than a practical provision, just a convenience, but it's an expression of family closeness to God and his people I think we need to put a lot of weight on that idea of the heavenly home it's not a nothing it's something very personal and precious and something that we are to look forward to so here's the challenge how much do we long for the heavenly dwelling how much do we long for the heavenly dwelling dear brothers and sisters it is our calling and we can make it a prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to long for the heavenly dwelling. It's my spiritual ambition this year to really long for the heavenly dwelling. This isn't a function of age or health. This is a function of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a longing for that heavenly dwelling Not for the dwelling itself, but for the fact that we will then be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is quite clear from Paul's writing, he always counted as far better. Far better than anything he was enjoying on this earth. And I suppose, if it's my spiritual ambition to long for that heavenly dwelling, the deeper prayer is... I want to know Jesus better. 
I want to appreciate him. I want to know him personally better. I know a lot about him. I want to know him deeply. So that quite naturally, I should want to say, I want to be in that place where Jesus is. Paul is strong on this point. He says, if we're here on this, just in this place here, we are away from the Lord, apart from the Lord. This sounds an extraordinary thing to say. How could a believer be apart from the Lord? He's saying, yes, we have a relationship with him now by faith. But we look forward to a relationship with him which will be by sight. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Whatever blessing Paul is expecting occurs immediately upon dying, we are to be comforted by the knowledge that we will be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. This is clearly something very special and well worth looking forward to. The suggestion from this verse is that if we didn't, if we didn't have that hope about us, we would be in a very sad situation. But God is giving us a specific comfort, something to definitely look forward to. While we're in this tent, verse 4, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So Paul's concern is not just to be relieved of pain and suffering and sorrow. Something very positive here. The vestiges of God's very good creation are going to be beautifully refreshed and renovated in the heavenly dwelling and in resurrection bodies. Heaven is not about only the loss of certain things that plague us now, but the gain the gain, the wonderful gain of all that God intends of his beautiful creation. And I draw your attention to the phrase at the end there, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Death is typically seen in the Bible as the swallower of life. But Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, has reversed this process. So Paul himself writes in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse uh, 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. No one else has done that. It's only Jesus can do that. Jesus has done that. And as we are identified with him, then we find the reality of that to be true. That the mortal is swallowed up by life.
Isn't that a glorious expectation? Now the one who has fashioned for us, us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The whole work of God in, in the past, redemption, the new birth, the gifts and graces of the spirit, is looking to this as its result. This is the purpose of God. This is the destiny of every Christian. We are God's workmanship and he is preparing us for fellowship with him. We have the spiritual pleasure of this by the gift of the indwelling spirit. I don't know if this subject excites or even bores you. But if we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, part of his work is to give us a sense, this world is not my home, I'm just a travelling through it. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond blue. It's part of the, of the work of the indwelling spirit within us to know that we don't have a permanent place here. This is not our real home. We're strangers and pilgrims and aliens in this world. God's work is to bring us to be with him in his glory. He will not leave any of us down here as it were he wants us to be with him which is our true home our true belonging the purpose the ultimate purpose of our being is to be with him forever therefore we are always confident there's that word again and know that as long as we're at home in the body we are away from the Lord we're always encouraged and strengthened because we know that the only indefinite alternative to being here on earth is to be with the Lord in heaven. So Paul had very bad days and you and I have very bad days as well. Difficult days, struggling days, unhappy days, upsetting times. But we're always confident we're always confident. We're always got a reason for encouragement and strengthening because we know that the days here are not the real test, not the sort of benchmark of our true existence. The solid hope for every believer, whatever your week is and whatever your week is will be, is to be with the Lord in heaven. And that was sufficient hope for Paul to be able to carry on in his ministry. That is sufficient hope for us as well. We live by faith and not by sight. Now we believe in him without seeing him. Hereafter we shall see him face to face. Our life and conduct and our walk in the world rest in our belief in the unseen. Blessed are those who have not, not seen but believed. That's the condition for all of us, isn't it? We do not see the Lord Jesus. We read of him. We 
We set our spiritual eyes on the unseen where Jesus is. This is the life of the Christian. 1 Peter 1 8. I'll turn this up. Though you have not seen him, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Present continuous as we go through our life looking to the unseen saviour who we read about in his word. In a most marvellous way, we can be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Because God is refreshing us with the knowledge that he loves us, that we belong to him, and that there will come a day when the goal of our faith will be achieved, which is the full salvation of our souls. It will be completed, and we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We are confident, says Paul, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And you'd be reminded of that passage in Philippians where he speaks of that same tussle that he has in his spirit. And Paul compares two possibilities. On the one hand, I could depart now and be with Christ, or I could remain in the body. And he resolves it in the case of the Philippians by saying, I think it's the Lord's will that I stay on earth that I can minister to you. Even though, he says, it would be better by far if I was with Christ. Well, that's an interesting struggle, isn't it? Interesting tussle. We resist death. We hate the thought of it. We don't talk about it. Christians are in that same place as people in the world. We think that dying is the least desirable option for any of our lives. But Paul doesn't see it in that way. He sees it as a close run thing. If I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. Which is far better than anything that you could say about my present existence. I stay. Well, what's the one reason he wants to stay? It's so that he can be a blessing to others. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Interesting to think about that. I look at our seminar and I think of the NHS. And I think of the billions, billions poured into to a system which strives to make us well. That is good. We are to be as well as God wants us to be. But dying is no mean thing for the Christian. It's actually a very beautiful and precious thing to take us to be with him. We need to have courage and bravery 
in this matter, don't we? To be fed and instructed by the word of God. We're in a complete minority in this matter. But here is the word, and here is the comparison. To be with Christ is better by far. And this thought came to me. The experience of those who are now with the Lord Jesus Christ is far better than the experience of any Christian in their living on earth. The youngest believer, the one who has failed but has received forgiveness, is still in a far more blessed place than those who have been faithfully and strongly following the Lord Jesus in their lives now. It's a, it's a fantastic thought, really, isn't it? Because they see him. They see him. They're in the tangible presence of Jesus. He's close to them. In a way that possibly none of us have ever experienced in our lives. Now I say this for the comfort of those who have lost loved ones. And many of you have. And if they're the Lord's people and he's held them fast, then they're in that place where Jesus is very pleased to call them his own, to speak to them directly and to be close to them in heaven. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Whatever state we're in, earth or heaven, Our calling is to labour to please Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? Make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. In heavenly places, it's still the business of Christians to be pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. To be serving him. To be blessing him. To be praising him. We never lose the right and the role of being happy servants of Jesus. Paul says, well, we make it our goal to please him. Oh, definitely, because we don't want to stand before him ashamed, do we? We don't want to have reason on the last, on that day when, when we die to be sorrowful for unconfessed sin or anything like that. Oh, we want to be in a pure and a clear place where we've made it our goal to please him. Our lives are marked out by such a desire for him, such a desire that he should be blessed, that he should be pleased with us. It fulfills our calling. And here's our final verse. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There is a day of reckoning. When Jesus returns, and on that day, Christians will find themselves declared righteous and without blemish because of the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. But still experiencing the rewards of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's a hope. It's an expectation. And we should not dread that day because as Christians... We have been made right in God's sight and he's 
pleased, pleased to look upon us, glad to look upon us. And that we can well receive with great surprise, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that astonishing? He has a perfect standard, could still say of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Whereas we say, we're just unprofitable servants. He says, never well done, good and faithful servant. That's beautiful, isn't it? This is not a happy day for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said beautiful things about Jesus. The word speaks beautiful things about him. But he comes on that final day, not just to raise his people from the dead, not just to give resurrection bodies, but also to be the judge all the deeds done in the body well now that's a very very serious matter isn't it he comes to be the judge there will be a judgment made and the word makes it very plain a separation how important it is to run to the judge now and to find him to be our saviour find him to be the saviour Embrace him as a saviour. This is the day for it. Because it's still a day of grace. Jesus hasn't come back yet. You don't want to be unclothed and naked and exposed on the day of judgment. No. Please don't be in that place. Please do not be in that place. I choose rather to seek him. To call upon him. To embrace the knowledge that he loves us so much that he went to the cross of Calvary to pay the price of sin so that we would not face terrible judgment but rather experience wonderful, precious joy. That's the place you need to be. This is the day for it. May God, by his spirit, grant that to you. It's a solemn moment. I want to make six applications. The first is this. Christians live in two worlds. The world of the seen and the world of the unseen. We are temporarily planted in the world of the seen. We will, by God's grace, move to the world that is currently unseen, but will then be vigorously and gloriously visible. This is our destiny. Also, we are now genuinely in the world of the seen and the world of the unseen. It's curious that we think so little about this. Within 100 years, I've done my arithmetic, nearly every one of us in this building will have experienced death and the life to come. And none of us knows whether that experience will be within years or in days. Yet weeks and months may go by without any personal reflection and prayer on this topic. The strength and depth of our Christian life now is dependent on a vital relationship with the unseen Lord Jesus Christ. This was definitely Paul's focus and longing 
We're encouraged by God's word to set our hearts on things above. Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Even the wonderful heavenly dwelling and the resurrection body, though very precious, are not to be compared with being with Jesus. This is where the unseen but living Christ is. This is for us a life of faith, not sight. Not, please note, a life of conjecture and uncertainty, but of reliance on the personal work of Jesus Christ as he is sufficiently and richly revealed to us in the words of the Bible. The scriptural antidote to trials and suffering, weariness, fear, grief and discouragement is to look forward to what lies ahead. Please take this to heart. The scriptural antidote to trials and suffering, weariness, fear, grief and discouragement and any other words that you might want to describe the negatives of life, is to look forward to what lies ahead. That's exactly what the Bible says. That's how we are to deal with our present difficulties. It is the prime method of dealing with our current struggles, is to look forward to what lies ahead. God will give grace for what we face in this life, but our biggest help is the knowledge that one day... This will end, and we shall be with the Lord and with his people forever. The Bible is sufficiently clear about the unseen world now and in the future to enable us to be well informed. Although Paul appears to have had special experiences of heaven, he writes about it later, whilst on earth, he doesn't talk about these things. He talks about the things which the Holy Spirit reveals, which are now recorded for us in Scripture. We don't go beyond that. But we must go as far as that goes. We must embrace the things that the Word of God puts before us about the world to come. And sort of milk it for all it's worth. He talks about the things which are there in scripture. These are just what we need to know and to be nourished by. The seen world is so powerfully present that we need to soak ourselves in Bible teaching of the unseen world. We're so indoctrinated as to the evil of dying that our energies are devoted to resisting that reality and unrealistically thinking that we can live forever rather than giving head and heart space to the eternal blessings that lie ahead for the believer. Because until Jesus Christ returns, there's only one way into that future world, and that's by dying. This is completely understandable from the perspective of the unbeliever, for whom death is a terrifying blank. But it should not be so for the Christians. You remember that great passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, where he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. I don't want you to be un- unknowing about what's really happened here. I don't want you just to blank it out. 
and he gives them the teaching about the Lord will return, the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised, and he will come. And he, he says at the end of that passage, therefore encourage one another with these things. Encourage one another with these things. We need to sing the songs. We need to read the scriptures. We need to pray the prayers. We need to get alongside one another and not be embarrassed about these truths, but to say, these are the truths. This isn't in doubt. We're of one mind on these matters. This is what God intends, what he has in mind. We have a responsibility to encourage each other, especially those who have had close encounters with death and dying. And these matters are not secret knowledge. They are there for all to notice whether you are a Christian or not. Much of what we've looked at this morning seems positive, some looks challenging. But the common factor in all of this, whether in this life or the one that meets us after death, the common factor is Jesus Christ. And it's our relationship with Jesus which will determine whether death is the door to blessing or disaster. The question is whether we will love or loathe him, run to embrace or try to hide, accept or reject. But why would you reject the one who died on a cross to provide forgiveness for sin, acquittal on the day of judgment, mercy and kindness in abundance? Why would you do that? Why would you spurn God's grace? Why would you do that? Why not reach out to him today and ask him to be your saviour and your Lord? And if you know you're in a place which is too far away from Jesus Christ, even though you may have made some commitment towards him in the past, well, isn't today a great day for you to be re-establishing your relationship with the Lord Jesus? I have some helpful books, little booklets, with the title, Facing Death with Hope. I'd love to give those to you. Pick one up, just ask me for it. If they run out, I hope they run out, then we'll get more. Facing Death with Hope. 